0: And if I'm not mistaken, that's how great the father's love, how deep the father's love. Okay, I knew it was something like that. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Young people, kindergarten through third grade are dismissed for junior church. If you are here, I hope you brought your Bible. Turn to First Corinthians chapter four. First Corinthians chapter four. You're in for an adventure. We're going to cover 21 verses in the next uh, 35 minutes. So hang on. Be ready. Ready to go. Uh, We are going to look this morning at trustworthy fools. As we look at the whole concept that is found in 1 Corinthians, the first part of it, is we find that the Apostle Paul makes it clear that no one is more valuable than someone else. Humility not being arrogant, are absolutely things that should be true of all Christians. Even though the Apostle Paul was a great man, he was no more valuable than Apollos, or no more valuable than the person who went out and helped their neighbor. Humility is absolutely essential. Unfortunately, in the world we have, and in the days of the Greeks, and the culture and the philosophy of Corinth was the Greek philosophy that if you were a humble person, that was derogatory. It was something that wasn't good. In fact, as even today, people think that a humble person is somebody that walks around looking at their shoelaces, afraid that somebody might think that they're okay and they did something good. That is absolutely not a humble person. That somebody has no self-confidence, no self-worth, no self-esteem. That is not a biblical concept. You see, the most humble person in the Old Testament was Moses. That's right. Thank you. Somebody got it right. Yeah, Moses was not a guy who walked around and said, I'm a nobody. He started out that way, though. But Remember that? I can't speak. You know, get Aaron to do it for me. But we find him being the leader of two or three million people. He led them. He had no problem saying, hey, this is what God has said. This is what we need to do. But here's what a humble person is. A humble person is, knows who they are, who they're not, and who they can trust. Think about that. I like to say that Moses and Aaron went around with dirt in their faces. Why? Because they were constantly, because of the moaning, groaning, griping, and complaining of the people, they were falling down on their faces to the ground before the Lord, saying, Lord, we can't do this. That's what made Moses a humble person. Wasn't somebody that couldn't accomplish anything. Wasn't somebody that simply looked at their shoelaces and said, I'm a nobody. Pity me, poor me. But he was a humble person who knew who he was, knew what God had given him to do, and simply did it to the best of his ability. But he was also humbled to realize that he didn't have all the power that was needed to carry it out. The Apostle Paul is going to try to get that same type of concept across in this chapter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Let's look at what it says uh, in these next 21 verses in this next short while. First of all, he makes it clear that servants, and he will also use the word stewards, need to answer for their actions. Let's pick that up in verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. Same word. When it says servants, this is not the word for deacon, someone who serves tables or meets the temporal needs, the earthly needs of someone else. This is a different word. This means an under rower, somebody who is undergirding someone else so they can carry out the task. They are working for someone else. And if you look at what it says, servants of Christ, they simply said, we're not Christ. We're not taking Christ's place, but we are serving Christ. We are under Christ doing the work that Christ wants us to do. That's the word servant. And then it goes on to say that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are this, those things that are revealed supernaturally. It's not the world around us and those types of things uh, that we can see the hand of God. But it's the things that God has revealed supernaturally to us. And he says, we're stewards of those. Steward is not the same as a servant, even though there would be an overlap in those two uh, designations. A steward is a household manager. That's exactly where the word steward comes from, one who manages a house. This person may have been uh, very well-to-do and an independent, free person. It could have been a slave. But what they did as a steward was they managed all the assets of the owner of the estate, the master. And they did not do it for their own profit, for their own good. They did it for the profit, the well-being, the good, the benefit of the master, the owner of the estate. They did it for someone else. Now look at this. He says that we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He said we are under Christ and we are Managing this life that you have given us for God's glory, for the good of God, for his benefit. Think about that. The apostle Paul is making that statement. He says, that's who I am. We look at the New Testament. We go, no one greater than Paul. And he says, oh, I'm an under rower. I'm a steward. I'm a household manager. That's what I do. He didn't think more highly of himself, but he didn't go around like, I'm a nobody. Nobody likes me. I'm going to eat worms. He didn't do any of those things. He knew exactly who he was. He had no problem standing up for what was true and doing what God had asked him to do. And it nearly cost him his life a few times. The point is, he is saying, this is what we need to do if we're going to serve the Lord. And he goes on in verse two to say, moreover, in this case, stewards need to have one thing. They need to be faithful or trustworthy. Notice, and this is the verse I go back to every time because um, we used to talk about, and, and churches still do this, they talk about nickels and noses. How much money the church has and what they can do with the money or how many people. And they look at that as, this is a successful church. Now, I'm not going to say there's nothing to those things because there are. You can't have a church without the resources and the people to carry it out. But God doesn't look at success the way we do. God looks at it this way. You are successful if you are faithful to God and trustworthy to carry out what he's asked you to do. The numbers are incidental to you being a good steward or a good servant. It may happen. Praise the Lord when it does happen. But that's not the criteria. That's the way the world looks at it. We look at it. Have I been faithful? Have you been faithful? Are you trustworthy? And I will tell you this. You don't give additional responsibility to someone who has not been faithful and trustworthy. No no manager, no boss, no owner of a business would say, I'm going to give you more responsibility because you've been slack. Because you haven't carried out what you're already doing. They're going, no, no, we're going to demote you, but we're going to promote the guy who's faithful. I would rather any day of the week have someone who does what they say they will do, carries it out to the best of their ability, than have someone who says, look at me, look how great I am, and then not carry it out. The person with all the the talent and gifts and all those types of things, you know what, they're just frustrating. I want somebody, and that's what this is saying. Then Paul says, I need to simply be trustworthy. I need to be faithful, and that makes me a successful Christian. And then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, you want to judge me? Wow. I pointed this out a little bit last week. I'm going to do it very quickly again. But starting in verse 3, but to me, it's a very small thing that I might be examined by you. Now, I would like if everybody had a good opinion of me. Guess what? Don't think that's a smart aleck thing to do because do you want people to have a bad opinion of you? The answer is no. We want people to have a good opinion of us. We want to have a good reputation. Nothing wrong with that. But the Apostle Paul said, not the criteria. That is not the bottom line issue. He said, it's a small thing to be examined by you. The word examined appears here four times. It's the word judge. You know what? You may think something of me and may or may not be true. May or may not justify me. May or or may not vindicate me. May be right, may be wrong. It doesn't matter. He says, you know what? I'm not really concerned all that much about what you think of me. In fact, as he goes, or by any human court, I believe here he's referring to the Bema. If you remember a few sermons back in the very first sermon, we talked about the, the Bema, the seat where judgment took place in Corinth. Had a picture of it. It's still, you can still see it if you go there. And it's it still marked that and everything else. The judgment seat. What, uh, what does the whole community think of me? He says, you know what? That's not even the criteria. That's not my bottom line. In fact, is in verse 4, he says, Oh, by the way, I am conscious. Or, um, I'm sorry, the end of verse 3. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not acquitted by this. Now, I got to tell you, my wife and I have an ongoing thing. I'll put on a tie and a suit or whatever else, a sweater and a pair of pants, and she'll go... That doesn't match. And I just tell her I'm five years ahead of time because five years from now, everybody will match this up. That's how fashion works, just in case you didn't notice that yet. But anyway, and that's a joke. She always rolls her eyes and says, if you want to look like you don't know what you're doing, go ahead. But the point is, I can look in the mirror and um, I don't look in the mirror to comb my hair anymore, but I do try to straighten my tie a little bit. But you know what? Even then, I can walk out the door and stuff doesn't match and I don't really care. And you know what? I'm cool with it. To me, it's fine. I don't see anything wrong with me. My wife does, but I don't. He says, I can look at myself in the mirror spiritually and say, I'm okay. I'm okay, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Oh, I can see it in you, and I can see that problem in you, and that sin in you, and, you know, I can see it in everybody else, but I don't see it in me, and that's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, you know what, I can, I can look at myself, but when I do, I'm, hey, I'm okay. It's all you that are wrong, right? That's the way it works, I guarantee you. It works with husbands and wives, it works with families, it works at churches, it works across the board. But then he gives the real one. And the end of verse four, he says, but the one who examines or judges me is the Lord. He said, you know what? Only one of them really matters. And that's what God thinks. And you know what? That's the one. That's the hard one. Because I can look in the mirror and see exactly the same thing you see. And I'll go, hey, no problem. And you can go, you've got a problem, Paul. But he says, no, the Lord is the one that judges. And then he says, oh, by the way, make sure, verse 5, don't go on passing judgment before the time. In other words, don't get into the business of judging everyone else. I'm not saying sin should not be dealt with. That's the next chapter. Sin does need to be dealt with. But he's not. I'm not going around looking over your shoulder, peeking in your window, you know, trying to find out the dirt on you. He says, that is not what we're supposed to be doing. That's not our job as Christians. Don't go on passing judgment ahead of time. But wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. Those are not the things you see. And they're not even the things that I see about myself. And disclose the, and here's the key word, motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. See, I do care about what other people think about me. I care about my reputation. So do you. But ultimately, that's not what really matters. I tell people many times, they say, how do you stand in front of people and talk to people? Well, if you knew me before I was a Christian, you would know that you would never have guessed that I would ever stand up here. That was not me. I was kind of really laid back and my wife was the outgoing one. And now, even to this day, you know what I do? When I come in here every Sunday morning or whenever I come in, I leave all my inhibitions outside the door. <laughs> because you know what? If I started thinking, I wonder what she thinks about me. I wonder what she, he thinks about what I'm going to say. You know what? If I did that, I wouldn't say anything. I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be stuck, you know, in fear. But you know what? Here's what it comes down to. When I leave my inhibitions out there, it's like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to say? I can honestly say there's. Sometimes I stand up here and say stuff I never, vi- I, I never visited. Yeah, I never study because the Lord brings it as, as I'm going along. Not always. I do my study, but God says I'm going to check your heart out. Even the dark things that you don't see and nobody else sees, I check them out. That's what it comes from. I look at the motive, the plan, the purpose, your attitude, your reasoning behind what you do. What I want to do, I want to make sure people know the truth. I want to make sure they understand the truth, and I want to challenge people to put it into practice. I'm not against, and if you go to any kind of seminar or anything, they'll say first impressions are really important. By the way, I'm not against first impressions. I hope I make a good first impression on anybody who walks through these doors. I'm not sure I do, but I hope I do. But you know what? if you're with me, first impressions can be very, very deceitful. Because let's face it, I can put on a really good front for a few minutes. So can you. And then you find out the real person. Well, God's this whole thing, what Paul is saying is God looks at the real you. Why you do what you do, what your goals are, what your purposes are. I know there are people that you meet them and uh, go, wow, this guy's a really, or this gal's a really great Christian. They give you the testimony of something that happened 20 or 30 years ago. And then you ask them, what is happening in your life? Well, you know, what's happening in your life? And all they have is their testimony from 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, it's a good first impression. A, a, a few weeks ago, we had all the new members of Garden Chapel come up front on Sunday night and give their testimony. One what what of the most enjoyable, encouraging services that we've had at Garden Chapel in a little while. Because to me, it was like, wow, this is great to see what God has done in people's lives. But you know what? I also, and that's great. I'm I'm 100% for that. But it's what has happened since that. Has it continued on? If 20 or 30 years later, you can just say, well, I got saved in 19 whatever. And uh, you know what? The Lord is good. And you can't say the Lord is working in my life now. There's a problem. We need to go on. But anyway, I need to move forward. Servants also need to be examples of humility. As I mentioned when we started, humility is the big thing. Not being arrogant is the big thing. He starts off in verse 6, saying, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. The word learn there is be a disciple. A disciple is, the word we get in English is mathematician. Mathematician. Mathetos is the Greek word, and it's one who learns from their master, from their teacher, one who becomes like their teacher, practices what they're taught. He says, I have lived in front of you an example so that you could literally follow me and that you don't go beyond what is written. Paul said, There's lots of things going on in this world, lots of traditions, lots of other things. He says, do not go beyond what has been written, what we have given you, so that none of you become arrogant in behalf one against the other. You see, if you say, well, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but this is what I think it means, or this is what I believe. You know what? You're arrogant. By the way, an arrogant person is not simply someone who's proud. They are obviously not a humble person but a a proud person just says, I'm better than you. Look at me. I'm wonderful. That's a proud person. An arrogant person even goes a step further because the arrogant person, uh, the word arrogant itself means something that's puffed up, blown up. Think of a balloon. What's a balloon full of? A lot of hot air. Okay, think about that way. But an arrogant person doesn't simply say, I'm better than you, I'm more valuable than you, but an arrogant person puts the other person down so that they hopefully look better. That's what an arrogant person does. He says, do not do that. Do not think that you're more valuable than someone else. That is absolutely not what a servant does. A servant obviously goes under the other person and lifts them up. An under rower, remember? That's what a servant does. And he says, you do this against each other. I, I really appreciate it. I told uh, uh, Jordan Wirtz this when they, they started Engage. That's what Faye and I used to do. Kind of very much like that. When Faye and I, many years ago, were youth leaders, uh, we didn't have like a teens-involved competition. But we would, once a year, put together a program that we could minister others, and it meant every that was willing to participate would be a contributor to the whole, and we would actually work together. And that's what Engage does. By the way, you're going to get to see Engage May 7th, I think is the right date, right? May 7th, you'll get to see the program that they're putting together, and they're actually going to use it at VBS. You know what? They're not like, I'm better than you. My, my solo is better than your solo better than yours, you know, uh, know, all those things. It's like, no, no, no. We're in this together for the glory of God, the benefit and to minister to other people. I really like that because that's what the church should do. And it's not, I'm better than you and I got to make you look bad so I look good. That is arrogance. And the apostle Paul speaks against it here and he's going to later on also. Obviously the opposite of a humble person. Because an arrogant person thinks they can do it on their own. And then verse 7, he goes, oh, by the way, who regards you as superior? So, So what's your criteria for that you're better than somebody else? Or what do you have that you didn't receive? You know, do you think you're original? He goes on to say, if you did receive it, why do you then boast as if you had not received it? He said, you know what? You're acting like... You got it all. You have everything. You're not dependent at all on anyone else. This is not right. In fact, is he goes on in verse 8 to say, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You have become like kings without us. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that it could reign with you. I wish you acted like a benevolent dictator. I wish that you acted like a king and you used all your power and your authority and your, your wherewithal to help other people. I wish you would do all of those things. But you haven't. In fact, there's even in the last book of the Bible when... God is writing to one of the churches in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me, notice from me, gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, righteousness, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and listen to this last one, eye salve so that you may see. You know what? I think my wife wants to go, Paul, you need new glasses because that doesn't match. You know, get get your eyes focused. That's the whole thing here. How many of you know the story of the emperor's new clothes? Oh, about half of you, maybe. Okay, the rest of you are going to get a very, very short version of it this morning. Because... Hans Christian Andersen um, wrote this in Denmark, I don't know, hundreds of years ago, and I really appreciate some of these children's stories because they absolutely make a point. The very shortest version of this, and I'm going to do the shortest version I've ever done of it, but the emperor was one who liked to go around and everybody see his clothes. He was a clothes horse. He had new outfits all the time. In fact, is they would ask, where is the emperor? And they wouldn't say he's in his throne room or in the, a meeting or board meeting or whatever else. He's in his closet. He's getting dressed. That's how much he liked it. He was always, every day, had a new outfit. Well, one day, a couple of swindlers came to town, and they said, we make the best cloth that there ever was made. We have the highest quality and we will do it. It's it's expensive, but we will do it for you. And he says, and he said, this will be, they told him, this will be the most magnificent clothing anyone has ever had. In fact, is anyone who is incompetent in their office or a simpleton will not be able to see our clothes. Only competent, wise people will be able to see the clothing. Well, the king's like, wow. That's better than any of the rest of my outfits I've had. I want one. So he paid them a large sum of money to begin making his clothes. So they set up a, um, a loom and start making the motions. And uh, the king was starting to get curious. They were weaving this cloth out of silk and gold thread and all this kind of stuff. And the king said, man, I'd really like to see what this is going on, but I don't want to go down there yet. I'll send my most trusted servant. Now, you understand, if you can't see the clothes, you're incompetent or a simpleton. So he goes down, and he looks at what they're doing. He sees them weaving in the air and, you know, cutting in the air and all that kind of stuff. But he's like, well, if I go back and tell the king that I can't see the clothing, I'm going to get fired. by the way i I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, look it up on the internet or get a kid 's book out. you can see the whole story and uh, I'll get far. So he goes back up and he says to the king, "These things are magnificent. This is the most co- highest quality cloth you 've ever seen. This is wonderful, but it's so exquisite." you're going to have to pay a little more money. So he gives them more silk and more gold, more silver and all that, and they hoard it away. And uh, they keep going. He sends a few other of his servants down there. And of course, they don't want to be seen as incompetent. They don't want to lose their job. So they all come back and they tell the king exactly the same thing. They say, this is just wonderful. Uh, and, and not a one of them will understand. So finally, uh, they, it, the time comes when they're ready to start fitting the clothing. So the king goes down, they start fitting him and they're like, you realize that this is the most different. This is so wonderful. Look at the colors, look at the pattern, look at the, look at the fineness of the weave and all this kind of stuff. And the, and they said to the king, now you have to understand that this is different than regular cloth. It's light as a spider web, you know, and, and so you'll hardly even know it's on you, but it is just magnificent. Of course, Everybody else had already told the king how magnificent it was. And so they, they dress him, and they're working late into the night because they're acting like they're working hard to make the best there is. And the next day, the king declares a procession, a, a parade, that he is just the main attraction is the king is going to walk in his new, wonderful, magnificent, excellent clothing. And so they do and they go long into the night and the king is saying wow this is really great and all this and he has his servants behind him lifting up the train and they're walking along and so the king is going down the and everybody in the crowd crowd remember if you can't see the clothing you're a simpleton you're incompetent something's wrong with you and the whole crowd is just saying wow isn't it wonderful isn't it great Look at that. And then, (laughs) this is why it's a children's story. And then a small child said, the king doesn't have anything on. Now, the king was in all his glory. No doubt about it here, folks. And uh, everybody else all of a sudden said, hey, that child is right. The king doesn't have anything on. But the king, he didn't want to lose his position either. And the emperor, the king says, To himself, well, maybe they were right. Yeah, they are kind of right. I I don't see anything. But you know what? The procession must go on. We must continue on. And so even more proudly, he strutted down through, even though he had no clothes on, and everybody right behind him was acting like nothing was wrong. You know what? The point is this. If you're arrogant, if you're proud, if you're not a humble person, you're going to act exactly like that. It's like, hey, nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. By the way, your family can do that. A church can do that. You name it, you can do it. You need to face reality. The point is, a servant has to be an example and has to be an example of what is right and true and good and profitable. But also, we also know that... Whoops, uh, my slides are messed up. I'll I'll use the next two and then I'm done. Uh, It also goes on to say, and there is uh, in... Matthew chapter 23, it says, call no man your father on earth. It says, don't call him a teacher, a rabbi, and those kinds of things either. And people have taken that, and they have taken it to something that it shouldn't be. In fact, is in verse 10, it says that we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. And then he, go, then he goes on to say, hey, we are, as, as apostles, we're, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're poor, uh, we're treated badly, we're homeless, we work with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless other people. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to make things right. We become the scum, the dregs of this earth, this world simply that. That's what you scrape off of pots and pans after you're done using them. It's what you scrape off of an engine if you're like me and you're trying to build a new engine. You scrape all the grease and all the dirt off. It's good for nothing. You throw it away. You put it in the trash. He said that's what we've been treated like. But he says, and that has happened right up until now, but he says in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you. The apostle Paul isn't going, I want to make you feel bad. Because if he did that, he would be doing exactly the opposite of what he's just been preaching to them about. He'd be saying, I'm more valuable. I'm better than you. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm not doing this to shame you, but to admonish you. Bring it to mind is what that means. Beloved children, for if you have countless tutors to Christ or in Christ, I'm sorry, yet you would not have many fathers for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He says, I'm your spiritual father. Now, there are people that look at this and say, the Bible is full of contradictions. This is one of them. It says, don't call any man your father. And then the apostle Paul turns around and says, I, hey, by the way, I'm your father in the gospel, in Christ. Is that a contradiction? The answer is no. But there are those that do take this. So let me give you a few statements from Scripture that are absolutely true, that the word father is used. For example, biological relationship. The Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother. Well, that's the exact opposite of saying don't call anyone your father. So it obviously cannot mean biological. Many of the Old Testament patriarchs, they were the forerunners of what Christ would do. They are called father. For example, in Luke 16, Father Abraham. No problem with that. There no thing... The messenger of the gospel. That's the Apostle Paul. That's this passage right here. And there are those that are spiritual leaders in general. They said, you know, the priests were the spiritual leaders, the fathers of Israel in Acts chapter 7. And then the last one is it is used of anyone who cares for somebody else like they were family. Job had made it very clear, he says, I have been like a father to the people who couldn't help themselves. Nobody contradicted that. I don't know about you, but I've had some young men who've said, Paul, you've been more of a father to me than my own father. And I have attempted to do that. I'm not sure how good a job I did, but I have attempted to do that. And you know what? Those of you that have helped other people's children and maybe adopted them or been a foster parent, or a whole lot of other things. That fits this whole thing. You reached out and cared for somebody else that needed care. No problem with any of those things. On the other hand, if you go to the arrogant, proud, I'm more valuable side, you have a problem, and I believe that's exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 23. If it indicates, if the, the title father is given... As a status or a position that's similar to God. Holy Father. That type of thing. Absolutely a problem. Because you're taking something that belongs only to God and applying it to yourself. The second is that it indicates that you're of higher value, have spiritual superiority to someone else. This kind of goes with my Sunday school class, right, where we're talking about Roman Catholicism. A priest in Roman Catholicism is an Altar Christos, another Christ. And they are called Father. The priests are called Father. It's absolutely out of place. It is not biblical and the last one is, it indicates that someone is in the place of God. For example, the Pope is called the vicar of Christ. Vicar simply means instead of Christ. He is instead of Christ. When you call the Pope the Holy Father, that's a problem because it violates this. The Apostle Paul said, no, I've become your father in Christ. That's I forget it. We're done with the slides. They're messed up. Um, we're, he's not saying, hey, I'm better than somebody else. He's just saying, hey, I'm a servant. I'm a steward of what God's entrusted me. I'm simply using what God has given me for God's glory. I'm using it to lift you up. That's not a problem. And so you can see this whole thing is that we use what God has given us for God's glory and for the benefit of other people. I've got so much that I, Paul said, as we talked about being examples, he says, I want you to imitate me. In fact, is further on in the book in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Listen, I don't believe you should follow another person. Don't follow me. I'm not going to follow you. But here's the other side of that, is I believe that I should be an example. And guess what? If you claim the name of Christ, you better be an example also. And you know what? You should be able to say to someone else you're witnessing to, or someone you're trying to disciple, or someone you're teaching, you should be able to say to them, do as I do, not just as I say. You should be able to do that. As long as you are doing what Christ is asking you to do. I don't try to make somebody else me. I don't try to make Pastor Peter me, even though he was doing an internship. I taught him some things that I know, but I didn't try to make him Paul Malfair. That would be really dumb because he's not Paul Malfair. But hopefully I've been an example to him. And I hope Peter is an example to others. And I already know he's doing that because I ask around. I'm saying, how's Peter doing? How's he helping you? He's doing really good. He knows what he's talking about. You know what? That's really great to see that. So we should be examples, but we're only to imitate other people as they imitate Christ. So if I do something that's wrong, don't imitate it and say, well, Pastor Paul did it, so maybe it's okay. If you know that it's against what the Bible teaches. That would be absolutely against what the Apostle Paul was speaking. We are to be examples, there's no doubt about it. And uh, we need to make sure that we not only say the right things, that's what the Apostle Paul did, but also be the right things before people. And we're going to bring this to an end, uh, looking at verses 17 and following. He says, you know what? I am coming to you. And I'm going to send Peter, uh, Timothy, I'm sorry, to, and uh, he is going to come and remind you of my ways which, in, which are in Christ. And the thing that I teach, and I'm an example every place else, I'm going to send Peter, uh, Timothy, ahead of time so that he can remind you. You're going to give an answer. You have to answer sometime. But the conclusions come to this. He says, now some of you, this is verse 18, some of you become arrogant as though I were not coming but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Four, the kingdom of God does not consist of words. Oh, no, wait, the preacher said the right thing. The Sunday school teacher said the right thing. The youth leader said the right thing. The small group leader said the right thing. I'm glad they did. That would be wrong. I mean, that would be false teaching. But it's not the final criteria. That's not what it is. It doesn't consist in words, but in power. That is taking those words, putting them into practice. Where does the power come from? Is it them? Remember I said before when we're judged, a lot of things that we think are great are going to get burned up because on the outside they look good. I did it on my power. I get the glory. But if I do it in the power of the Holy Spirit... God gets the glory, I get blessed, I get rewarded, yes, and other people are benefited. And I stand the test of the fire. And then the Apostle Paul ends with this. (laughs) Kind of a hard place to end, but it's really a good one, because it sets the two aside of each other. It says, what do you desire? Remember, the Apostle Paul's going to visit. He'd been there five years before, and he's saying, I'm coming back. He says, what do you desire? Shall I come with a rod, symbol of discipline, executing, hey, you were wrong, I'm smack your fingers. Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. You see, we don't, live in, we don't need to live in fear as Christians. We just need to know the Lord's coming back. And he is going to hold us accountable for exactly what we do. Not simply the words that we say or what everybody else thinks about us, or even what you think about yourself. But what do I test myself by what God says? I can look in a regular mirror and come out and say, I'm okay. But when I look in this, (laughs) that's a different story. When I ask God, test me, try me, show me if there's some evil way in me. He doesn't play games. He says, hey, Paul, get it together. That's wrong. That's a bad attitude. That's the wrong action. Those words are not good words. We need to all recognize that we have to answer. Not to ourselves, not to some human court, not even to the community as a whole, but we have to answer to the Lord. Arrogance, pride, those kinds of things have no place. Being a good example in our words and our deeds and in the motives behind what we do, absolutely what God wants from us. tell you what, that's a tall order, and it's not easy. The fact is, it's impossible to do without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the truths of the Word of God. Not easy, but it's doable, because he's the one that works in. Remember Moses and Aaron? They were humble, but they knew where their power came from. They knew what they could do, what they couldn't do, but they knew where to turn. I challenge you with that this morning. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, what a great God you are. And you have not left us without power. You've not left us without information. And Lord, you've left us with a great expectation that we would live as examples to those around us. That our life, our words, our attitudes, everything would work together for the glory of God, for the benefit of those around us, that they would not only hear about the resurrected Lord, but they would see the resurrected Lord living in us and through us and using us in ways that we could never do on our own. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us with those words today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless Go with God and be a blessing to someone.